But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now it was the third hour, and they were crucifying him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The two criminals they crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left with Jesus in the middle. The scripture was then fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they cast lots to divide his clothes and decide what each should take. They made four parts, one for each soldier. There remained his tunic. This was without seam, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide who will have it. And the scripture was thus fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. These things the soldiers did, and sitting down they kept watch over him. Over his head was put the charge against him. Pilate wrote the notice to be put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The title was read by many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, You should not write the king of the Jews, but that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. People stood by watching. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him. They mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The thieves also were crucified with him, and they cast the same in his teeth. And one of the criminals who hung there with him mocked him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you and since you and I are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're getting what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Near to the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his sister mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of them that were standing there heard it, they said, He is calling for Elijah. And after this, Jesus knew that all things were accomplished. Fulfilling the scripture, he said, I thirst. And there was a jar of wine standing there, and one of them ran immediately to get a sponge, and he filled it with wine and put it on a reed and held it up to his mouth and gave it to Jesus to drink. Others said, Wait and see if Elijah will come and save him. When Jesus had received the wine, he cried with a loud voice, It is finished! And then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of their tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion who stood by facing him saw how he had died, he said, Truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. It was the day of preparation before the Sabbath. And this was Passover Sabbath. Therefore, so that the body should not remain on the crosses during the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies removed. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. One who saw it is our witness, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth that you also may believe. These things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, that not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, after scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. By this time, evening had come. A respected member of the council, Joseph of Arimathea, was one who was looking for the kingdom of God a good and righteous man who had not consented to their purpose indeed. He was a disciple of Jesus secretly, for he feared the Jews. Now he took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was astonished that he could be dead already, and he called for the centurion and he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when he was assured by the centurion that it was so, Pilate granted Joseph the corpse and commanded that it be given over to him. Joseph bought fine linen, and he came and took the body of Jesus. Nicodemus came also, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred-pound weight. It was he who had come first to Jesus by night. They then took the body of Jesus, and they wrapped it in the linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, where no one had ever been buried. Joseph laid the body in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were sitting there opposite the sepulcher and saw where he was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. On the next day, the day after the preparation, 
the chief priests and Pharisees went together to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember that this impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise again. Therefore, command that the sepulcher be made secure until the third day to stop his disciples from coming and stealing him and saying to the people, He has risen from the dead, making the final deception worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the sepulcher secure. They sealed the stone and they set a watch. This concludes the account of the passion of our Lord. Well, God's grace, mercy, and peace be to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this evening's message is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the 27th chapter, beginning at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And what shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. This is our text. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, our Prince of Peace, dear friends in Christ. Can I have some peace around here? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? I mean, sooner or later we all desire peace, don't we? I mean, the feuding husband and wife, they long for peace. The anxious and the depressed, they want peace. The sick, they want peace. The grieving, they want peace. The investor, he wants or she wants peace. And nations that are divided or fighting amongst themselves, well, they want peace too. And so the world manufactures peace. The world gives peace to feuding couples by providing counseling 
And if counseling fails, then divorce is an option. The world gives peace to the depressed and the anxious by encouraging things like yoga or prescription drugs or self-help books or listening to music or having a healthier diet or embracing some form of pseudo-spirituality. The world gives peace to the sick by guaranteeing them health care or by providing medicines that they claim will cure them. The world gives peace to the abused by providing safe houses and by putting abusers in jail. The world gives peace to the grieving by encouraging celebrations of life. Yes, the world gives peace to its citizens by building up the strongest, most skilled military, promising to protect them. Some people are so willing to find peace that they're even willing to to fly to the moon if that will bring them peace. A number of years ago, Hayden Planetarium in New York City, Ian Jess set out an advertisement that said that they were taking applications to send people off to the moon. 18,000 people applied for that lunar trip. And so a psychologist studied the various results of that of that work. And he came to the conclusion that the people who had applied were trying to get away from responsibilities. They were trying to get away from life, if you will, and the problems in their life. One of the applicants wrote, it would be heaven to get away from this busy earth and to go somewhere that's nice and peaceful, good and safe and secure. Well, thankfully, some of these proposed and manufactured solutions will bring us a level of peace. They will bring a level of peace depending on what it is that we're facing in our life. And and many of these things are even gifts from God to us. But the peace that the world offers is circumstantially based. And it's not the peace that Paul speaks of in his letter to the Galatians when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit being peace. It's not the peace that Jesus speaks of and promises and provides to those who believe in him. Jesus, our Savior, says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Pilate wanted peace. I mean, those annoying Jews were once again knocking on his door, and it was 6 a.m., and Pilate wanted to get the whole bothersome mess done with Jesus, but Jesus wasn't cooperating. The more Jesus remained silent, the louder the Jewish authorities yelled and became riotous. Pilate, seeing that the mob was becoming really angry and and were even becoming like like a riot was breaking out, he realized that the only thing that he could do to kind of bring peace to the situation was to give in to the demands of the Jews. And so, that's what he did. He gave Jesus over to the authorities. And he washed his hands of the matter. Do you think, Peter, or, uh, do you think Pilate experienced peace? Well, the mob stopped yelling priests stopped pestering. But do you think Pilate was at peace with his decision to hand over an innocent man 
to that mob? History informs us that the Jews continued to kind of pester Pilate all through his administration. With it finally culminating in the fact that many of the Jews complained to the Roman Caesar and Pilate was recalled to Rome and then actually banished. The Jewish hierarchy, were they at peace? I mean, the carpenter's son from Nazareth unsettled them. Jesus had a way of peeling back their self-righteous exterior and exposing the rot that was inside them, the deep-seated corruption of their hearts. But now, Jesus was going to be crucified and the problem was going to be gone. Their positions of honor and authority were to remain and the nation of Israel would continue on. But history informs us that their precious city of Jerusalem and the temple would be leveled to the ground by a pagan power and they would all be scattered far and wide. Pilate's wife wasn't at peace with herself either. She sent a message to Pilate, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today because of a dream that I had. Pilate's wife was disturbed by the ordeal. Did she find peace? Well, not until God granted peace to her, when she, according to tradition, became a follower of Jesus Christ. The only person in our text who seems to be at peace is the lightning rod of the controversy, Jesus himself. The Roman guards and the Sanhedrin police, well, they are yelling at him, they're spitting on him, they're slapping him in the face. An orchestrated mob screams for Jesus' crucifixion, and yet Jesus remains calm. He's patient. He's in control of himself. He is at peace. And why? Because he's not trying to manufacture peace. Jesus isn't negotiating for his release. He's not struggling with internal sin because he's doing the will of his Father. He's entrusted himself in the matter of our salvation into his Father's hands. Jesus accepts the outcome that his life is going to end in death. And he knows that his death means that God will once again be at peace with his people, with his creation. Jesus' peace in the midst of his passion shows us that we too can be at peace with ourselves and our situation even amid the most unsettled crises in our life. Philip Brook says, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger people. Do not pray for a task equal to your powers, but pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Every day you shall wonder at the riches of life which have come to you by the grace of God. Where does such peace come from? Well, from Jesus. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. 
Jesus is saying, I'm not giving you a peace that fizzles out when your love fails. I'm not giving you a peace that flees when the doctor delivers the news that there's nothing more that we can do for you. He's not saying I'm giving you a peace that's easily snuffed out or snuffed out at all when you are overwhelmed with grief and depression and anxiety. He's not giving us a peace that plunges when the stock market does. No, you see, Jesus' peace is not circumstantially based. It's peace in times of conflict and failed relationships. It's peace in bad and anguishing circumstances. It's peace in times of emotional affliction, in times of anxiety and depression. It's peace when medicines fail and death breaks our heart. It's peace when the stock markets crash. It's peace even amid war. Jesus' peace that he brings to you and me surpasses all understanding and human comprehension. It's peace that comes from a state of being. And this state of being is created by Jesus' death on a cross. For it was on that cross that Jesus satisfied the wrath of his Father for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of all people. And therefore, God is at peace with us. And we are at peace with him. The Bible says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, including us, by making peace through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Another passage of Scripture says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we are now rooted. While we live in this sin-broken world, and as we wrestle with our own relational, emotional, and spiritual issues that come as a result of the fact that we are born sinful, God is at peace with us. And to this truth, Jesus' cross testifies. Yes, you see, relationships will fail. But with Jesus, there's forgiveness and healing. Yes, we'll experience anxiety, depression, and any number of hosts of emotional issues. But no matter what we're going through, no matter how we might feel, even about our relationship with God, the reality is that God is at peace with us. For we are his children, loved and redeemed through Christ. Yes, we'll experience sickness, and we will even experience death. But in our risen Lord, God promises his abiding presence and everlasting life to all who trust in Jesus. And so, yes, we can even have peace in the midst of sickness and death itself. And yes, we may experience the loss of earthly riches, but God assures us that we possess eternal treasures that never plunge in value. The bottom line reality is this. God is at peace with us through Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. Did you hear that? 
God is at peace with you through Jesus Christ, his Son, your Lord and Savior. And this relationship we have with God is solely by God's grace. We're simply the recipients, the recipients of God's undeserved favor. Many years, a Lutheran pastor wrote in the Lutheran Witness this following poem, and it goes like this. It's a cop-out piece that avoids problems of life. It's going to the mountains when violence is in the city. It's shutting one's eye to injustice, to hunger, to prejudice, to fear. It's passing by on the other side. It's using drugs and booze and busyness and religion to avoid one's own conflicts. But it is not peace. Some see peace as winning. To the victor belongs the spoils. Might makes right. We won the peace because you lost the war. It's peace decreed by authority. Peace that makes you think as I think, like as I like, hate what I hate, and do what I do. It's peace enforced by guns and bombs and walls and bars, laws and judgments. But it is not peace. But there is peace, real peace. It is not peace with honor, but peace by grace. It is not peace at any price, but peace bought by paying the wages of sin. It's not peace that is earned, but it is peace that is given as a gift. And I might add, if I could add on to that poem, it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It is a peace that guards our hearts and minds at all times and in all circumstances, for it is a peace that is found in no one else but in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And it's a peace that we experience every day of our lives in the relationship that he has established with us. And it's this peace that the Holy Spirit nurtures in our heart. Now may the Lord of Peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord is with you all. Amen. And now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen.